Welcome to another episode of Rad Talk with Tracy. I'm your host, Tracy Poffenroth Prado. This podcast is all about reactive attachment disorder, or RAD. I'm going to be talking with parents who will be sharing their experiences of what it's like raising a child with RAD. It gets raw and it gets real. I'm also going to be talking with experts from different areas who will be sharing information about RAD, resources, and support. I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Jeannie Brainerd. Jeannie is a mom of two adults with RAD. She always thought that when she had children, some of them would be adopted. When she met her husband, Mike, he felt the same way. They started on their life together and had their first son. When he was two and a half, their six-year-old son moved in with them. Jeannie and her husband are a military family. And as military families do, Jeannie and Mike moved around a lot. After a few moves and duty stations, they met their daughter and she joined the family. Jeannie is here to share her story about raising children with Brad. So Jeannie, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you for doing it. I was so excited to find out about Rad Advocates and, you know, your podcast. So I've listened to all of them now, you know, listening to them, there's a lot of common elements in, in everybody's story. So I, I tried to think about, you know, what, what I could offer that would be unique or helpful to even, you know, maybe our military population. I think I mentioned it to you before, military folks uh, adopt and take in foster children at a, at a high rate compared to, you know, the rest of society. And that's something I didn't know when you mentioned that to me when we spoke earlier. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I could give you lots of anecdotal things, um, but a few things that when I was looking at, you know, what are the reasons for that? There, there are some significant incentives that, that we have that the general population might not have. Um, we can get up to $2,000 to help with adoption and foster care, you know, fees, which is, is needed. 2000 plus would be, would be needed too, but you know, we have that. And then the military has something called the exceptional family member program called, we call it EFMP. And cause everything in the military has to have an acronym. Or <laughs> right. <an abbreviation. laughs> and so once you, um, you have to have your, your child or even the, the adult family member um, identified as EFMP. That would be anything that might be exceptional, you know, any kind of special need. So then there are some, there are some added resources that we have once your family member has been identified as EFMP. And so tell me a little bit about your story about why you adopted. You mentioned that that was something you always thought you would do. Yeah, when I was, I don't, I don't know, a girl, but when I was younger and, you know, thinking about, you know, what my family, even before I met my husband, what my family might be like, um, I've, I've always had a heart for, for families, children that might be in trouble. And, um, then when I met my, I met my husband, he, so I pictured, I pictured my family as a combination of maybe children that, that we gave birth to and children that we adopted. And when I met Mike, he said the same thing. So that was a first commonality that, that he and I had together. So then it was like a, it was a given, you know, right. Just meant to be. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm just going to let listeners know quickly, uh, Jeannie is near uh, the Marine Corps Air Station. And so you will hear jets flying in the background. And unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about that. But you'll get the the sense of, of the military family thing even stronger. Yeah, I didn't call them and say, let's have a, a heavy day of flying today. But, you know, that's the sound of freedom. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So uh, where were you or how did you, how did your first kiddo come to you? Um, we were stationed in Colorado Springs at Fort Carson at the time. And um, we had thought, like, in fact, when we were stationed in, in Washington State, we had already gone through the foster adopt training there. We, we had thought we would have an adopted child or a foster child sooner than we did. But um, we had we had some trouble conceiving, and so we decided that you know maybe we're not going to, and we were fine with that. And so we did the training and for foster adopt, and then I got pregnant, and so that kind of slowed things down um, a bit. We you know fully rolled into taking care of an infant. By the time when Jacob is he's 27 now, he was about two and a half. And we decided, okay, now we're ready to pursue this again. And so we did the training in Colorado because every state has their own set of hurdles that you have to go through. Right. I was going to ask about that being military, moving around so much, you have to repeat everything. Yeah, we've done, we, we have two children, but we've done training in three states. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> we, we finished the training. And then the paperwork was long and arduous. And I was, I was a high school teacher, so I was teaching at the time. It, it took a while though, I would say maybe two or three months for us to finish the paperwork. It was just, you know, there's deep questions and things that, you know, you have to think about a lot. So anyway, we finished the paperwork and the day that I finished it, um, I went to work and I had the paperwork in the car and I dropped by the Department of Social Services to drop it off that day. I, I don't think I had a cell phone in those days. I think it was before that, but I know I got home and there was a message on, we had a landline then, don't have one now, but there was a message on my, my landline. So it took me maybe 10 minutes from the time that I dropped the paperwork off to get home. And there was already a message on my machine saying, that they wanted to, us to come in and talk about a child. You're kidding. Yeah. That's so, unreal. That was a God thing too, I think. Right. You know? Yeah. So I called my husband and we made arrangements to go in in the next couple of days. It's been a few years, but I know it was, it was pretty quick. And um, Peter moved in with us pretty quickly after that. I'm sorry. Had, how old was Peter when you adopted him? He was six. Okay. Yeah. And he had been in, um, I think, seven or eight foster placements before coming to our home. Wow. So. Wow. And you told me a little bit uh, when we started about his story, his mom was originally from Manitoba. Yes. Yes. She was um, uh, Ojibwe First Nations from Manitoba. Okay. And so you got Peter. How was life raising Peter? 
I thought it was difficult at that time um, because there were things that were new to me, you know, as you probably understand, there was, there was no support, there was no help. There was not even, um, I'd never heard the word reactive words reactive attachment disorder. You know, when we, we thought until, until we saw some things years later that it was hard, but looking back on it now, it was not hard. He came into our home, he pretty quickly um, adjusted there were some things that are, are typical things that children coming out of a, a disrupted situation are going to struggle with, but um, he's a he's a kind and gentle and resilient person, and he worked very hard to become part of our family. Yeah, with that, and, and I'll tell you, I, I struggle with. Um, this is my story, but it's also someone else's story. So you, you may see me pause about, I don't want to overshare his, his story, nor, nor my daughter's, um, because a lot of things are theirs to tell. I'll just say that many common elements to stories that, that you've already heard. Um, and you're talking about rad behaviors or things that happen that are strictly rad you experience yeah. the same thing that most families do yeah okay. I, I can give you one example um that i i don't think peter i'm sure peter would not mind my sharing when um he was first he first came to live with us not very long after that we were we travel across the country a lot whether it's moving to a new duty station or going home to, to see family. We, we did a lot of traveling in, in our military days. So we were driving across the country from, from Colorado, probably to North Carolina. And I had a friend who in the middle of that, you know, in that flyover area in the middle of the country, she lived there. And so I called her up and, and just said, hey, can you know, we stop and stay one night with you and visit? And so she said, yes, of course. And so we stopped and stayed with she and her husband. My son had never met her. Neither of my sons had ever met her before or her husband. I'd never met her husband. And he came out of the car when she met us in, the, in her front yard. And he ran up to her and greeted her like she was a long lost relative or friend. And it was, it was uncomfortable for me and uncomfortable for her. And I didn't have a name to put on it, but I just, I knew, because our other son didn't do that. You know, he, he stayed next to me and was polite and, you know, nodded and said hi, but he didn't greet her in that way. Right. So that was different. Yeah. yeah. And how long did, how long did you go through difficult behaviors with Peter? maybe a year to two before, you know, I felt like this is more similar to what, what I expected in a, in a family. Again, I knew nothing about attachment issues at the time. Um, I started trying to read everything that I could get my hand on that addressed things like that. Um, I think there was a book early on, I may not be saying the right title, but adopting the hurt child, something like anything, but there was, there was nothing about, about early childhood trauma. There was nothing about reactive attachment disorder. 
and um, we did we did take him to therapy. You know, I I commend the therapist for being the person that he was. He was a military therapist, um, and you know, so most of his experience was with soldiers. He had done some family therapy, but I even in the in those days I I knew that it needed to be family therapy instinctively and not individual therapy. And and he was the therapist was amenable to that. So it was always my husband, myself, and our son. Good for you. Those are good instincts. And sometimes sometimes the, our younger son would come along just because he's part of this dynamic too but usually it was the three of us. Do you think Peter, he eventually did attach? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I would say he is, I honestly didn't, um, it's just been a few years ago that I started feeling like, um, and now I I was so happy to, to listen to, is it lean, Dr. Lean? I've been familiar with him, but um, I'd never heard his name pronounced out loud. So I, anyway, I was in, I was so excited to listen to him talk because I've been saying for years before I ever heard anybody else say it, that, that rad is a spectrum, you know, just like Asperger's, you're on a spectrum. I never really thought too much about him being, our son being on that spectrum until, until recently. And he's had some, um, he's had some issues that he shared with us with anxiety. And, you know, as, as we've talked through that and, uh, you know, I've done some research that I've shared with him on adults who, you know, may not have been diagnosed when they were children, but are, are dealing with issues as adults that are the results of, of attachment um, right. or lack thereof. And it sounds like your son, according to Forrest, would be one of those kiddos that it was more trauma-based because he did attach and he was able to work through that. So that's a really positive outcome for you. And life got easier for you after that year or two when he started, Peter started adjusting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would say too, that he, um, his his mom has, has since passed away, but um, he was very attached to her. Um, and you know, her, her issues were, um, you know, she just, she couldn't, she couldn't provide and she had some, she had some alcohol related problems too. But, um, as far as, you know, I could see there was, she did the best that she could when, when we came along, she still had supervised visitations and she always made the visitation. She was that trying that hard and that that presence, trying to be that present in his life. I mentioned that he had a, he had a sister and his older sister was already placed with another, another family before we came along. And that, that family was just, they were only able to take one child. And that's, that's kind of a common situation. You know, it's, it's hard to place these kids together in a sibling group. You know, that's, that's just the way that it was. And he has, she still lives in, um, in the Midwest and he has, he's tried to maintain a relationship with his sister and, and that kind of ebbs and flows. Right. And do you know much about his sister? Did she have any of these? I guess you might not talk with the family or know this, but 
did she have any of the same uh, issues that Peter had with attachment or rad or do you know? I can't say that I do. Um, I, I have a an acquaint. I'm an acquaintance. Of, I'm I'm acquainted with her mom. Her her dad. Her adopted dad is not in the picture any longer, but I know her mom. Friends on Facebook. When their mother passed away, she was she was killed tragically. She was a homeless person, and she and her uh, her companion were murdered on the streets of Colorado Springs. Oh my gosh, horrible. It was horrible. He was 13 at the time. Oh. And so we, um, I, it, it's a long story how, and I won't share the, the whole thing, but sure. again, it was a God thing, how I made contact in that very time period where we were finding out that she had passed away and where he was actually from, made contact with his tribe and their tradition, they, they bring the like her body was in, in, in the Denver and the Color Springs area. They bring the body back home and then they do a traditional burial, which involves something that I can only describe as a, a big potluck dinner in a graveyard. And you are supposed, everybody brings lots of food and you're not supposed to say no to, you're supposed to, I've never eaten so much in my life. <laughs> It's a, it, you don't want to offend someone by not right. eating what they bring you. But as I started watching people, everybody else was taking just very tiny portions of everything that was offered. And so anyway, we, we went to this, we went to Manitoba for this event. And I, I talked to um, his sister, his sister's mom. And I said, I would love if you guys would go too. And so they discussed it and got back with me. So we met up with them in Manitoba. Wow. So here are, you know, two white moms with their, you know, Ojibwe children. And um, a funny story when it was a very, very, very small town outside of the reservation. And so there was, there was one place for us to stay in a hotel. And it was, it was not, a. I felt like I was in the wild west. There was a, <laughs> church a catholic church at one end of the street and this bar slash hotel slash diner was at the other end of the street and when we we stopped somewhere to get gas and we were near near the reservation maybe even on it and while i was inside getting the snacks for peter and i someone said to me a native person said this phone is for you and nobody knew me there, but they knew that they knew that Peter and his sister were coming and they knew that they had white moms. And so the, the girl that was working in there was a distant relative of my son's and wow. she had called mom and said, I think they're here in this store right now. Wow. And so I spoke with the person on the phone who ended up being Peter's aunt. And she invited, she told, told us where she was and invited us to come over there. And then, you know, in the, in the, the bar slash hotel slash diner, everybody in the town was white. And so we had kind of the opposite, you know, when I was on the reservation, I was the only white person when we were staying in this, this hotel, you know, loosely, loosely defined as a hotel, we were staying there. He was the only person of color. 
in there. So it was interesting. One, how remarkable that all of that, the timing on all of that, that you were all able to go and he was able to be present for that. And it sounds like he was able to meet some distant relatives. He was able to be at his mom's funeral. Did he, he met his sister? Yeah, well, he, we had already, we lived in Colorado Springs for about a, about a year and a half after he came to live with us. So he saw his sister regularly then. Okay. And it's only been since we've moved away that they've had to keep in touch, you know, by phone. And I don't know, I would assume that they're friends on social media, but I'm, I'm not sure. And what was that experience like for him at the funeral? Our son is a, like I said, he is a kind and gentle person. Mm-hmm. He also has, has worked very hard to be, he's compliant. And, and I know now that that probably was not easy for him. But he's, he's more a person that um, he tries not to make waves. He tries to go along to get along. And he went. But it wasn't until probably weeks after we got home where he was angry at me over something. And I didn't know what it was. And with him, when he's angry, it just means he's quiet. He, you know, he, he doesn't act out. Never really has. Um, just kind of shuts down. Yeah. I I kept trying to talk to him about it. And finally he just blurted out. I did not want to go. Huh? He did not want to go. And and I I said, to what? He said, when you made me go to my mom's funeral. And, and I think at the time, this is my analysis at the time was, you know, he just, he's a 13 year old boy. He, again, he likes to go along. To, he doesn't like to stand out. And he was, at the time, he had, he's a, he's a wonderful student and he was involved in soccer. He, he ended up being a very good, he played varsity soccer by the ninth grade in, in high school, even wow. with the green round. I think he just wanted to be a normal kid, not the kid that had two moms and one of them was tragically murdered and, and now he's going to Canada. Right. He, he, as an adult, has told me that he he understands now why that was important, and he's glad that that I made him go. And it, at the time, it was it was me. My husband was, as mil- military folks would understand, my husband was deployed at the time, and my family who tried but often did not understand where we were coming from and what we were doing and why we did some things. My father said at one point, I don't think you should do that. And I said, why not? And he said, reservations, they got their own rules. You may get up there and they'll take that boy away from you. And um, so he was concerned about about that. Uh, And I just had to give it to God. And I, I just knew in my heart that this was something that was important and and our son needed to be a part of this and hindsight is 2020 I, you know I know now that I was right right I, I doubted myself at the time but sure. now that I was right well it sounds like you have incredible instincts and I'm so glad that that worked out so Peter is how old now 32 32 and then you had another daughter is that right 
yeah, she, we were stationed in Hawaii at the time. My husband was working. My husband is a chaplain in the army, was a chaplain in the army. Um, it's hard to even, it, it feels like yesterday that we were doing this, this army life. And because um, <laughs> you're retired now. Yeah, yeah. We're retired now, but we were stationed in Hawaii and she came to live with us when she was five. Okay. And it sounds just to go back to what you were saying, I meant to step in. It's your husband was deployed. So has this been a lot on you managing this, the, you know, raising the kids and then having these extra tough times with your son, at least for the first year or two, and then, you know, organizing the funeral and dealing with family and different perspectives and, you know, has that all fallen on mostly you? Well, it, as you know, often um, the the husbands don't see the behaviors. And that was true, not only because my husband was deployed a lot, but because he didn't see the behaviors, even right. when he was around. In fact, the first time that he, and, but he, he always believed me. There was, and I, and I know that this is, is a traumatic time for marriages and there are some marriages that don't survive and definitely I just I feel blessed to have the husband that I have because he always believed me and always supported me but the first time that he saw the behaviors in our daughter was when she was a teenager and you know we had known her since she was five right and you know she was just she she was good at at triangulation she still sometimes tries to triangulate he and i and how old is she now 24 24 so you adopted your daughter at five how old was peter at that time uh peter's two years older like 12 okay okay and you were in hawaii you adopted your daughter and another rad kiddo she was not adopted at five she was okay child and um, we she was a foster child. Okay. When um, when she moved in with us, the social worker's words were this exactly: "No one wants this child." Wow. Which indicated to us, okay, well, this is going to be a pretty quick transition from foster to adoption. And um, but did you ask soon- why they said that? Why does nobody want this child? Did they offer any? explanation well what what they told us and what we could see was that she had her her birth mom was i i don't know i I don't know her the whole psychosis or what was going on but she ran away from her own home at 16 or 17 and most of her young adult life including when she gave birth to our daughter and our daughter was with her was spent um, couch surfing, you know, so she never had her own place. You know, she was moving to different places and, you know, that friend would eventually say, it's time for you to go. And sometimes she would go back to her mom's and and leave our daughter there. Oh, okay. But then she'd come out and get her. So it was, it was back and forth between, between mom and grandma. And grandma had remarried um, and had two younger daughters in, in the house at the time. 
and they lived in a small apartment in Honolulu. They couldn't be approved as a foster placement because they only had two bedrooms. Oh. There, wasn't, there wasn't enough room. Okay. And so social services got involved when the grandma tried to register our daughter for kindergarten. And, you know, then, you know, she, she didn't have custody. So then social services came into that and, and she was removed. And then she was placed in a, a couple of foster placements before we met her. And I don't think it was the truth. You know, I think that, I think that the grandma very much wanted to have her, but they didn't make enough money. They didn't have a big enough place. You know, it just, they were not going to be approved. Um, and then the birth mom, I mean, she kept coming back. So she couldn't make it work. And then she would leave her at, at her mom's house, but then she'd come back and get her. So I think somebody did want her. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's sad that grandma couldn't keep her. Yeah. So anyway, she, she came to live with us and was with us for about seven months before um, birth mom now had a new boyfriend and a new baby. Oh, wow. And then she, she went before the judge and she made a good showing and the judge gave her back to, so she left, our daughter left our home then. And she was gone for a, about a year and a half from us, but she only stayed with birth mom and the stepfather for about six months before she was removed again from oh, wow. that situation. And where did she go when she was removed? Not back to you? Well, we were now in North Carolina. We had, we had moved to Fort Bragg and I made it my business to once a month call the social worker and say, and you know, her, her name is, is burned in my brain because she was terrible. She, the social worker, the social worker. I would call her and say, we're here still. If Samantha enters the system again, we would like to be considered, you know, we want, we want her to come back to our house. And she would just say to me, you have no standing. I can't give you any information. We're working toward reunification. And um, six months into that, she was lying to me because they were not working toward reunification. I found out later that they had tried to place her in two homes, but one was apparently more of a adequate placement. She stayed there for a good amount of time until um, we, again, we were told that the, the husband was more interested in having a child than his wife was. And finally the wife just couldn't deal with it anymore. And so that, that placement was disrupted. Ironically, years later, um, so at that, well, at that point, the social worker then called me, not the one whose name is burned into my brain, but her <laughs> boss. And um, her boss called, Vivian called and said, I understand that, that you and your husband are interested in, um, in having your daughter back. And she didn't call us to call her our daughter, but, mm -hmm. um, and I said, yes, we are. And she said, well, 
my understanding was now she's calling us because she's in an emergency situation right now. She has to find a placement and she can't find one. And she said, well, my understanding was that you were divorced and you were no longer an option anymore. And I said, well, my understanding is not, we are not divorced and you could not not consider us for, consider me for a placement, whether I was divorced, whether I was, I, you know, I knew the law in Hawaii at the time, you know, whether I was, you know, uh, if, if I were a lesbian, you couldn't not consider me for placement, but you certainly cannot consider me because you think I'm divorced. And she said, well, I was told, so this other social worker, when, when Vivian asked her, why are you not calling the Brainers? She said, they've gotten a divorce and they're not an option anymore. But when Vivian was in this emergent situation, she decided to set the record straight and give us a call. So um, my husband, you know, we have other children at home, so it wasn't, it wasn't feasible for both of us to fly to Hawaii at the time. So he was able to turn it into a, he, an army trip. And so he flew out there, did some army business and went to court and brought her home to us for the first time, for the final time. Then. Wow. And how old was she now at this time? What? Seven. Oh, okay. So she had been, she had been away from us for a year and a half and most of that time in two disrupted foster placements. And how were you feeling during that time of struggling, you know, making those calls every month and hoping that you would get her back? What were you feeling during that time? Stress? <laughs> a lot. Yeah. I mean, lots of despair. I mean, I'm, right. I'm tearing up thinking about it now because, um, you know, she had, I know now that, you know, she had not attached to us, but we were very attached to her mm -hmm. and, you know, we, she was, she was our family and, um, I, I couldn't stand the, I knew enough about the mom and the stepdad situation to be afraid for her safety. And I was again, right. Because right. she was, she was abused in, in ways when she went back that she had not been abused before, before she was not stable. She was going back and forth between mom and grandma to younger or, or to aunties, young aunties that she loved, but she was unsafe when right. she went back the second time. And so yeah. what was life when she, like when she came back to you at seven? Was that rad? Yeah. Yeah. It was, as you might suspect, there was a honeymoon period where everything seemed, you know, wonderful. Right. Um, you know, but I knew, I, I knew enough that when I registered her for school, we, I was lucky enough to get her in the same, we, this has never happened, never happened before or since. She and my son are two years apart in, in age, the son I gave birth to. So we move so often, they never have the same teachers, but she was going into the same, a grade and um, my son had had that same teacher when he was in that grade. You're and kidding. So I, I went to her because she, she was a phenomenal teacher. My son had been very lucky to be in that classroom and I was able to request her and we got, 
we got our daughter in the same class with the same teacher with the same teacher and i went in and talked to her and i said you're gonna have a honeymoon period where she's going to be the best student that you've ever seen and she will do everything that you want her to do she will you know her academics she's very smart you know her academics will be outstanding she will smile and she'll be kind and share and you know just everything that describes a seven-year-old that you want in your classroom so but that there's some point in time when that honeymoon will be over and you'll look back at what i'm saying and you'll go oh okay i'm glad i was warned and that of course happened if i remember this story again it's been years but I got a call at the high school that I was working at that I needed to come to the elementary school where she where she attended. And what she had done was just she disappeared. Oh wow. She disappeared because she had she had held up this this charade for as long as she could and she had they had been at lunch and she didn't want to go back to the classroom because she didn't want to do the schoolwork, she didn't want to, you know, whatever. But when um, in the lunch in the lunchroom, there was this particular cafeteria worker that was kind to her. I'm sure everybody was kind, but this woman had taken a liking to her. And so she was someone that our daughter didn't know very well, but um, she talked to her. And so what she did was, and, and I don't understand still to this day why this adult allowed this to happen. But she she had given this this cafeteria. Our daughter was supposed to be going back to the classroom with her class after lunch. She'd given this cafeteria worker some sob story, and so she let her stay there with her and talk. And and then you know, teacher gets gets back to the classroom, and where's we're missing a child, and so they start looking everywhere and called me and said that they can't find her. And ultimately, they did find her with this adult having a conversation. And she didn't think she had done anything wrong. I just, she said, I just didn't want to go back to the classroom. I, I'm not going back. So that was the beginning of the end of the honeymoon period for, for that teacher. And we, we had that everywhere. You know, I think that the fact that, that we moved as often as we did it gave her more often than um, than not. I mean, she had more often than other kids would normally have. She would get this new place to start all over every year and a half to three years, depending on you know what jobs my husband had. We, on average, moved every two years. Right. And so she got this new start with new people that she could she could charm and triangulate. And no one knew her history except us. You know, I would try to share it with guidance counselors, teachers, but you know, we would we would get those inevitable calls where we've been reported to social services because she's told someone who's not completely familiar with our home situation something that she was attempting to get herself taken out of our home over and over and over again which is so common yeah they'll do anything so you have an interesting story i'm just 
reviewing everything that you've said. So, you know, you're in the military, you move around, your kids move around. You have one adopted son who sounds like he did attach. And it sounds like that didn't happen with your daughter. And then these kids also coming from visiting several foster homes, one after the other, and then coming to a military family stable, but still moving around. That's an interesting uh, in, that's interesting insight on your daughter and how she utilized that time. And I can't help but think of you, you know, moving around and in these new places, having to explain your story in, uh, you know, with new people finding resources every couple of years to try and, and help and explain that story. And then having child services come in that to me is overwhelming. That's a lot. How did you cope with that? What did you do? Military communities are tight and they're supportive. And as I mentioned before, there's a lot of the services that are mobile. You know, you, you, you have the same service on this installation that you had on that installation and, and the records carry. So, you know, if we were, if we were involved in EFMP on, on one place, you know, that carried through to another place. And so you could, within the military, you could have professionals talking to each other, even though they were in different locations. Oh, that's really good. So that's, that's an advantage. That's a huge advantage. Yeah. This tight military family. I I, I'm looking at something that I wrote down here. I wrote in two plus decades of rad in a military. I can only think of one instance where a military spouse her husband was was the military in the in the army where our military spouse and her kids interfered in our family because of triangulation it just it didn't happen among among my military family we were believed and we were offered help wow and you know in in many cases you need respite i mean i i didn't know what to call it, but I knew that I needed somebody to give me and my a break. break. Yeah. But you don't want to put that on someone else. Right. I have had, I've had in the military, a few friends who one of them understood completely because she had their family. They had um, four children that they gave birth to and another three three children, no, four children that they adopted. And one was a disrupt, they, they had to disrupt the adoption with one of them. But she, she would be an example of someone who, we could offer each other respite. And I have another friend who, you know, her children are, are all grown, but she was, she was a neighbor in, um, when we were stationed in San Antonio. And I knew that I mean, she did, she did offer that and I knew that she could handle it and I knew that I could trust her. Right. Because the fear of handing over your kids to somebody to look after the fear is that, you know, how hard it is and you don't want to put that burden on someone else. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm glad that you were able to find respite because that is one of the hardest things for most families to find. And it's so necessary. Yeah. And, you know, we, because I grew up in a very um, tight community. 
I was the first person among my cousins, and I have a lot of cousins, to go to college. Uh, people don't tend to leave that community. Um, I read a, or actually my husband found this statistic, but it was a very high number, and I can't remember, but it was above 75% in the county where I was born. A high, high number of people that are born there die there. Oh, really? So I'm in a, I'm in a minority to leave. Sure. And, and marry somebody who's in the military. And you know, we've lived in Europe, we've lived in Hawaii, we lived all over the United States. And most of my family has lived in the county that, that I was born in. Wow. So it's difficult for them to, to understand both the, the military lifestyle and what's going on with our children. Obviously, when we would we would go there for you know brief visits, whether it was Christmas or you know, break in the summer or something. She was able to maintain the facade while we were there. And we have extended family members that have interfered. You know, I was, I was told, I'm, I'm actually not going to share that one because okay. that, yeah, that one is, is too hard. Um, but we were and still are thought to be the problem it's a parenting problem, right? Um, because certain family members have have never seen it. Well, most family members have never seen it, and some never believe us. They they see um, it, it, she she is a, a beautiful person. She's charming. Mm-hmm. Um, they see those things, mm-hmm. and you know they they don't see they don't see the pain. You know they don't they don't see why. We have a problem. No. Yeah. And now what, so your kiddos are now adults. What is life like for them? Especially your daughter. It sounds like your son is very well adjusted and, but your daughter, what is life? How old is she now? And what is life like for her and your relationship? And as an adult with rad, um, our son, he, he has been working in the field that he was trained. He graduated from college has been working in the field that he was trained in ever since then. So he's a productive member of society. He's, you know, he's been struggling with some things. And I think COVID induced, oh, you know, right. as as many people are. Yeah. So we we've been having more conversations about about that. And I've encouraged him. I found a therapist in his area. Again, as you might suspect, it's difficult to do therapy these days, but he's he's been meeting with this person over like we're meeting right now over that's um, fantastic and that he's open to that and then our daughter she has had two children um when the first child was born when she was in high school and thank god at the time she agreed to adoption because you know when she were not opposed to raising this child who is eight now. Oh, wow. But we were afraid of putting that child into our home, you know, and that child would, would experience all the things that, that we were experiencing because we still had, we still had a child to be raising, even though she had had a child. So we were blessed, a a young couple who we had been, become acquainted with through the military when they found out they had 
they had trouble conceiving, you know, and their story goes, of course, after you adopt, then you, then you have a baby. Right. You know, they, they had had trouble conceiving and they had already adopted one child and they contacted us and said, you know, we're sorry if this is a, a terrible overreach, but we, we want to be considered adoptive parents if that is what your family is going to do. And so that's where she is right now. She is being raised by a wonderful Christian couple who, you know, we, we met again through the military. She has an older brother that was adopted and they have since had two more sons biologically. So oh, she, wow. has, she has a beautiful family. Um, and, and we get to be grandparents to all of those children. Oh, that's really nice. So they have three sets of grandparents, including us. So you get um, to be involved. Yeah. Yeah. They don't live close. Of course, they're, they're in another state, but we Zoom and, and we talk. And had, had COVID not happened, they were going to be flying out here to be with us for you know a week or two. In oh, summer. shoot. That's that's on the back burner. That's going to happen as soon as everybody can get um, get their vaccines and and it right. can be so that can be safe. Yeah, that happened, and then we we moved, of course, from the location where she gave birth to a new location, and so she had nobody knew that she had had a baby. Nobody knew what was going on. She started at a new high school. That fresh start thing mm-hmm. all over again. Yeah. Yeah, and things things went well for a time period until they didn't. You know, she, I'll say it over and over, she is so, all of our children are academically gifted. Mm-hmm. And, but she eventually reaches the point where she's not going to do the work. She's not going to you know, do the schoolwork or the work in relationships. Right. And, Following those rules and expectations. Yeah, so she was getting close to graduation. And in the state that we were living, they had um, competency exams that like, not only did you have to pass the classes that you were taking, you also had to pass this English exam, a math exam, you know, and all of the subjects with a proper score. And she had she'd been telling me since she was a little girl that when she was 18, she was moving out. You know, she would get angry at me, angry at us, because, you know, she would run away and we would, you know, pursue, get her back in the home. Why don't you just let me go? Just let me go. And I would explain to her, well, until you are older, we can't just let you go. Mm -hmm. And you're a daughter. We don't want to just let you go. But um, so she did. She moved out on her, her 18th birthday came in April before she'd even graduated from high school. And um, I helped her find a place with a roommate, but that was a ruse also. At some point in time, she had already, the internet was, and probably still is, was a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. So she had, she had met a guy on the internet that lived in another, another city and so pretty soon after we got her set up in this apartment with a, a young woman who was her roommate, 
she would move to the other city to live with this guy who is the father of her six-year-old who lives with us. We're raising her daughter who is six, just turned six this week. We didn't know for a while that she was that she was pregnant. We didn't know for a while that she was where she was, but we eventually did. When I realized what was going on, I this is one of multiple times when we've had to clean up her mess. Um, I called the young woman that she was living with because I suspected that she was probably left in a bad way, and and I I. I don't even remember how I got her phone number, but I did. And I, I called her up and I said who I was. And I said, is there something that you need to tell us? Is there something that we need to help you with? She told us that that our daughter's part of the rent had never been paid. And, and she was about to be evicted. She had, she had found someone who was willing to move into the room, but she couldn't pay the back rent. And so she, she needed about- to catch up. So we, we paid the back rent and, um, and, and help this girl keep her, keep her apartment. Oh, that's really nice of you. Very thoughtful. Well, what do you do? I know that's kind of what you got to do, isn't it? Yeah. There's no choice. Yeah. So how did you end up with your granddaughter? (laughs) Oh my, um, (laughs) our daughter didn't want to be with she had married the father but she didn't want to be with him anymore ah. and you know she often behaves like an animal in a trap like she just wants to gnaw her leg off you know she has to be out of a situation um we knew that they were struggling but we did not know that she had made the decision that she was done and so we bought, we, we talked them into, well, we thought we had talked them into coming to see us in Texas where we were living at the time. We had bought plane tickets. This was going to be the first time our granddaughter was an infant. So it was going to be the first time we saw her, met her. When our daughter arrived, he didn't come with her. So, you know, I, I wish I had all the money I had thrown away on non-refundable plane tickets. Oh, gosh. Um, so he didn't come. And, you know, we, we learned pretty quickly that not only has she come alone with the baby, but she didn't intend on leaving. So I had to, um, we had to go, like, you you just can't, like, you could come and visit me living on on military housing, but you couldn't move in with me. Right. They have rules. You can't stay there, you know, over a certain amount. I think it's over 30 days. So we wrapped our heads around that, went to the housing office, you know, put in a request for her to be a permanent resident there, um, which was approved. And by the time we wrapped our heads around the fact that we were nervously going to be trying to raise this baby with her. So we're right in the situation that we feared with the first child. I was just going to say, yeah. Um, by the time we wrapped our heads around that, she left and left the baby with us. And many thousands of dollars later in attorney fees, um, we we gained custody. We can't adopt her because both of her parents would have to rescind their their rights. They still have some rights, Um, but we do have 
primary custody. So she stays with us unless, you know, there's this, this fear, I guess, in the, in the back of my mind. And I, I try not to, you know, it, you know, I don't walk in fear. Right. Sometimes it's there and that if they had the money, they could do exactly what we did and, and fight for custody, but they're not together anymore. She's actually married to someone else, lives in another state. And that, that marriage has lasted for a while, but. Um, How long is a while? I want to say it's three years. Oh. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That but, is a while. Do you think your daughter has changed? Grown? No, no, you're shaking your head. No. no. Yeah. No. I mean, she's, she's tried, but, you know, as I listen to the experts now, you know, those pathways in her brain just didn't form. Yeah. And, and there's with the proper kind of therapy, which I don't think she's ever gotten, um, certainly not getting now with the proper kind of therapy, they, they might be able to find socially acceptable ways to cope, but maybe never attach. And I don't like to say never. I mean, everything is possible with God. But I think in this situation, nothing is possible without him. And she has, she's tried, but she tries in her own strength. And, you know, that's gonna, that's gonna give out, you know, she can't work the charade. Um, I, I have advised her you know, to do the same thing that we do, you know, have, have people, Christian people around you that can support you. And, um, you know, I, I'm involved with, a, with a, um, a ministry called Stephen Ministry at our church. And it's basically, you just get this training. You're not a therapist, you're a listener. And mm. so people are going through different difficult situations, have a listener to sit there. And, and if, you know, we're, we're also trained that if, if it gets beyond what we're capable of to refer them, you know, to, to specialists that they might need. Uh, but, you know, we encourage her to do things like that. And, right. uh, and she doesn't, the, the husband that she, the young man that she's married to now, his fan, that's not an important thing in his family, you know. And have you met him? Have you, do you keep in touch with them still? Is she still open to communicating with you? We're, as you, as you might know, we go through times where we have open communication and then times when, you know, I call it going dark and, you know, she's gone dark right now. Mm. So I don't, I, I don't know when we'll talk to her again. What I do know is I don't have to accept the abuse anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm sad, you know, I, mm. I did listen to the podcast that, that Dr. Lyon did and, you know, he, 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 he talked about it and, you know, we may just be that family that she cannot have a relationship with us, yeah. but, um, you know, I just, I hope in her relationship with her husband and her husband's family that that gives her, you know, what she needs. And yeah, I just I, I have to be in that relationship when it's when it's dangerous for me. You know? Right. 
And that is one of my questions. Now, how have you coped? Because listening and having somebody to talk to and share your feelings is huge. Uh, at least, you know, I think so for families, just being able to share your story and, and to talk to somebody else who understands or has been there to some degree, but how did you take care of yourself in this time? Or were you able to, or is it only now that you're able to really change that mindset and let go a little bit and really, you know, what, what did this do to you? Well, I'm, I'm undiagnosed, but probably have PTSD. Right. Very common. Definitely have a, a brain that is a trauma brain. Mm-hmm. You know, I find that it's, it's hard for me sometimes to, I'll, I'll be in the middle of a sentence and I can't think of the word that, that I want. And, you know, there, there are things that are triggers for me, but that being said, to answer your question, a faith group has been important to us, but the way that I found rad advocates, um, I've been involved in an online group called radical healing through the love of Christ. I, I usually go to, to that group because it's, you know, it has a Christian flair to it. There's right. a, and it's a subset of another one that I cannot, my, my trauma brain can't think of the other. So that's, that's a great support. You know, I, I visit there and I have friends around the country that I've never laid eyes on other than on social media, but <laughs> um, I feel supported by them and, and try to support them too. So you've created a huge support system for yourself. There's some family, my sister being one. It was difficult for her. She she lives, you know, not close by either, but it was difficult for her for a long time to understand. And we went through some tough times. But then she she eventually did understand and she learned that that red was a real thing. Right. And Good. Is there anything else you would like to share? One thing is I spent so many years being told that I was a bad parent mm-hmm. and, and being told that I was the one that was crazy. I was the one that um, was narcissistic and being made to feel that, you know, I'm making this up for attention. Um, you know, I spent so much time feeling like that. You know, once I, I started learning of people like Dr. Karen Purvis and um, Nancy Thomas, you know, just, just started finding this community of people that were, were struggling with the same things that our family was struggling with. And I actually did get to go to, um, I'm so glad that we did this. Dr. Purvis was dying of the cancer that killed her at the time that we were stationed in Texas. And I went to a workshop that she, that she and her folks did there at, um, it was, it was in Texas. And so I convinced another rad mom, military mom to go with me. And we went to that workshop and it I was just, I was blown away to be in an auditorium full of other people that, that understood. Right. So I, you know, I want to be there for, for other people. Yeah. And I do, I have hope for all of our children from the six-year-old all the way to the eldest. And um, I just want them to be able to live the best life that, that they can. Right. And you know, you'll always be there for them. And that's, that's what you can do, you know, and then in the meantime, keep that support 
group close and taking care of yourself. It was great to meet you and to hear your story and a very different perspective and interesting with the military piece. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I hope you'll be back to listen to future episodes. If you like the show, please subscribe and help me spread the word by clicking share and like. If you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.